You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 41. This week, I would like to thank everybody who has liked the podcast on Facebook. Uh, At the time of this recording, it's about 153 of you. Interacting with listeners is pretty awesome, and Facebook seems to be the number one way for that to happen. If you would like to join in the conversation on Facebook, you can like the show at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. A giant thank you also goes out to Frank from California for his donation. Now, he also had the most amazing story about his father's path through the war that made for quite the read, so thank you, Frank, for sending that in. Last episode, we discussed the German and Austro-Hungarian preparations for an attack between Krakow and the Carpathians in southern Poland. The attack would have the objective of moving the German lines through the Polish towns of Gorlisz and Tarnow, and hopefully all the way to the San River. The battle would come to be called, somewhat unimaginatively, the Battle of Gorlisz-Tarnow. The Germans had sent eight divisions under the command of General Mackensen, which would be joined by the troops from Austria-Hungary, allowing them to outnumber the Russians at the point of attack. Not only were the Russians outnumbered, but they also were not well prepared for the attack that was about to hit them. So that's a pretty good summary of episode 40 in 100 words or less. This episode, we will look at the attacks by Mackensen and their stunning results. But first, we will actually take a step back from the attacks of May to take a little detour up north to talk about some action that Ludendorff had undertaken in the north in an effort to pull Russian focus away from the attacks in the south. We will close out the day by looking at the further attacks in the south by Mackensen as a follow-up to the initial successes. I know that I left everyone on a bit of a cliffhanger last week, so it's maybe a bit odd for me to not follow that up immediately with the attacks at Gorlish and Tarnow, but we should probably head north to talk about the attacks that happened there, since they are important to the overall situation on the front when the attacks in the south begin. Ludendorff was given an objective in April 1915, and that objective was one of distraction. He was told by Falkenhayn to do whatever he could to pull Russian reinforcements north in preparations for Mackensen's attacks in the south. Now, there were some limits on the whatever-he-could part of those orders. He wasn't going to get any more resources, so he had to make do with what he already had at his disposal, which, while considerable, wouldn't be enough to launch the massive attacks into Poland that Ludendorff really wanted. With the resources available, Ludendorff figured that he could launch an attack into Courland. Courland is a region on the Baltic coast of Russia that was just to the north of the current German positions in East Prussia. Courland is not exactly the most important piece of land for either side, because there really just wasn't much there that anybody really cared about. Now, there were the fortress city of Kovno, and in the north there was the city of Riga in modern-day Latvia, but that was about it. The Russian navy thought it was important to hold on to it, since it offered more access to the Baltic Sea, But General Alexiev, the Russian army commander, placed very little importance on the region. 
So in mid-May, Ludendorff launched his attack with just a few divisions of cavalry and a bit of infantry support, uh, seven divisions of cavalry and five divisions of infantry all told. A pretty big attack when you look at the cavalry being used, but remember that cavalry divisions were much smaller manpower-wise than infantry divisions, so this was much smaller than most efforts on the Eastern Front. Due to how low he valued the area, Alexiev was actually going to just let the Germans have what they had taken, but this didn't sit too well with the Russian high command, so they told him to send in troops to stop the Germans and maybe try to push them back. The Russians would end up moving 9 infantry and 9 cavalry divisions in to stop the German attack, and so with that, Ludendorff had pretty much achieved his objective. Some ground, albeit unimportant ground, had been taken, and the Russians had been forced to react by sending in more troops. Seeing as he had achieved these things, and being in a good position where his troops could threaten Riga, but weren't really in a position where they were at risk from the Russians, Ludendorff ceased his attacks. The Russians then brought in even more troops and settled into a defensive stalemate on this part of the front. So a pretty small action by Ludendorff in the north had been wildly successful, not strictly through territorial gains, but also by pulling a disproportionate number of Russian troops to the north, just in time for Mackensen to attack in the south. Last episode ended with the beginning of the bombardment on May the 2nd, just before the attack began, and that is where we will begin again today. The bombardment was somewhat different than most because it was very brief, just four hours, but it was extremely intense. During those hours, with the combined German and Austrian artillery forces, they fired something like 700,000 shells across the 30-mile front of the attack. The level of this bombardment concentration was unheard of at this point in the war. At the end of the four hours, the Russian trenches, that hadn't been great to start with, were in complete ruins. The Germans had also, of course, mixed in some gas shells with their explosive and shrapnel rounds, which didn't help matters at all, and pretty much just added insult to injury. After the bombardment had been going for four hours, the infantry went over to the attack and followed the gas cloud on its way across no man's land. What the infantry found as they moved forward was success, which would have made any commander on the Western Front extremely jealous. The six Russian divisions that had been on the front probably didn't even know what had hit them, with the pressure of the bombardment, and then the gas, and then the waves of German soldiers. The Third Army completely collapsed. In a lot of ways, pretty much it ceased to exist. The Germans had focused their main effort right at the junction between two Russian corps, right where communication was the worst. And as they moved forward, they wedged their way between the corps, and the gap began to widen, and soon it was five miles wide. The local Russian commanders were forced into impossible positions. They had local reserves that they could try and use to slow the bleeding, but the only way to get them to the front was through the hail of German artillery fire. So they had the choice of not moving the reserves forward and giving up miles of ground to the Germans, or moving them forward and risking the casualties. In the areas where they pushed small units forward, they were often shredded by fire and had little effect. In the instances where larger units tried to move forward, they often met a similar fate and just as small of an impact on the course of the battle. Two infantry regiments, then two cavalry divisions, and then an infantry division were all brought in to try and stem the tide, and they seemingly just evaporated into thin air. All along the front, the Russian soldiers that were actually bearing the brunt of the attack found themselves without any real hope either of getting help from their armies or of stopping the German advance. This feeling of helplessness would contribute to the huge number of Russian soldiers that would surrender during the battles. 
In just 24 hours, the Russians were pushed back beyond the town of Gorlich, and in 48 hours, the Germans had advanced 8 miles. The casualty numbers that the Russians had endured during this time is staggering. One Russian corps started the battle with 34,000 men, and after two days, that number was just 5,000. One division of the 9th Corps just disappears from the histories through casualties and surrenders. It didn't help the situation that the troops that were being moved into the battle were not exactly of the highest quality, they didn't have the best equipment, they weren't the best led, they weren't the best trained, and therefore they didn't produce the best results. The commander of the 9th Corps, who was bearing the brunt of the attack, would say about their reserve troops that were being given to him to move into the battle, quote, Territorial troops have been utterly feeble, surrendering in droves, end quote. General Ivanov, the commander of the Russian Southern Front, began to consider retreat to be an absolute necessity. The only good news for the Russians was that they were able to pull back some of their troops immediately to the south of the attack, just in time to keep them from being cut off by the advancing Germans. One of the goals of the attack had been to quickly capture the roads leading north from the mountains and trap the Russian troops just to the south of the attack in those mountains. Fortunately for the Russians, they were able to pull back these troops to the river Vizkla, which greatly increased the length of the Russian lines, but at least it kept the lines somewhat continuous from the point of the breach all the way to the south. Now with the troops no longer at risk of being cut off, Russian high command insisted that the line be held, even though Ivanov believed that he had to keep retreating with as many troops as he could. The best indicator that retreating was necessary were the huge number of prisoners that the Germans were capturing. The number of surrendering troops is generally a good indicator of how dire the situation was along the front. A low number of surrendering troops, even if there were a high number of casualties, generally means that while the army was under pressure, it was still holding itself together and able to put up resistance. As an army disintegrates, the number of units being cut off and surrendering usually increases almost exponentially. On just the first two days of the attack, the Germans had been advancing and capturing a lot of Russians, something like 140,000 of them during the first 48 hours. The Austrians then added another 30,000 to that number during the same time. It wasn't just men that were being captured either, but 200 guns as well which was a massive percentage of the guns available to the 3rd Army at the beginning of the attack. While the loss of the guns was a long-term problem, it wasn't realistically much of a short-term concern, since it was proving impossible for the Russians to supply the guns they had left with enough ammunition to keep firing, given the disorganization of the situation near the front. The 3rd Army would receive less than 50% of the shells that it requested from the High Command in the days after the attack and this shortage of deliveries would continue for the weeks after the attacks began. Every day, the commanders of the front would request a certain number of shells that they thought they needed to keep firing, and they would receive 50% or so of what they requested. Now, to be fair, I am sure that the frontline commanders were inflating their needs a bit, but it is very doubtful that they were doubling them. It also isn't like it was just Russian high command being stingy. In a lot of cases, they didn't have the shells to give them anyway. Now, the Russians weren't just sitting there, waiting to get their faces kicked in. 
General Radro Dmitriev, the commander of the Third Army, was trying to organize counterattacks. On May the 7th, he launched a counterattack with two corps that had been provided to him from the south. Unfortunately, when the attack was launched on the 7th, it ran right into the face of fresh German reinforcements that had just recently arrived on the scene with the intention of attacking themselves. Before the attack, Radko Dmitriev would say of the attack that, quote, I have great hopes in this maneuver, the only way of restoring the army's position, end quote. The attacks would end up being a horrible failure, with the Germans stopping the attack, taking thousands of prisoners, and beginning to push the remaining Russians back. As a way of communicating the scale of the failure, let's look at the 24th Corps, which had been brought up from the south for the attack. The Corps had a normal strength that hovered around 40,000 men, and they would end the battle with just 1,000 men fit to fight. I'll just use this next sentence as a delaying bit of filler, so you can really ponder that like 40,000 to 1,000 number for just a moment. On the fifth day, the Germans captured the second namesake of the attack, Tarnow. The Russians were simply in a position where they had to retreat, but the Russian high command didn't think that it was the case quite yet. With hindsight as our guide, it is of course easy to see that the Russian army had to retreat at least to the Son River to put it between themselves and the Germans. In fact, the 3rd Army commander agreed with these observations, and was asking for permission to do exactly that. He saw a situation in which if he didn't retreat, and retreat soon, and retreat very quickly, he wouldn't have an army left to retreat with. General Ivanov, Radko Dmitriev's immediately superior, also agreed with him, drawing many of the same conclusions on what would happen if the retreat wasn't ordered. Unfortunately, when Ivanov took these concerns to General Danilov, the Russian chief of staff, he was told, quote, Your views cannot conceivably be submitted to the Supreme Commander's approval, end quote. Which is sort of where the idea stopped for the moment. The Russian general staff didn't approve because retreat would mean relinquishing all of the ground gained since the beginning of the war in Galatia, and would also mean abandoning the fortress of Shemeshal, which had only recently fallen into Russian hands. The capture of the fortress had been a huge victory for the Russians, especially in terms of propaganda, and to abandon it now without a fight was not even under any consideration. Dmitriev was told to have his third army continue to hold its ground. Ivanov's chief of staff would say right around this time, quote, The strategic position is quite hopeless. Our line is very extended. We cannot shuttle troops around it with the required speed, and the very weakness of our armies makes it less mobile. We are losing all capacity to fight. End quote. He would then shortly after have a nervous breakdown and have to be dismissed. It would take several more days and a lot of losses before the Russian high command would authorize a retreat on May the 10th. This was not done willingly, but instead was just a final realization that regardless of what the orders were, the army would retreat or it would be annihilated where it stood. What was left of the army did eventually make it to the Son River, where the retreat, at least for now, stopped. Since May the 2nd, the 3rd Army had received tens of thousands of reinforcements. Even with these numbers considered, the 3rd Army that reached the Son River in their retreat was only one-fifth strength that it had started with. While the Germans were having such huge successes, and Mackensen's men were throwing the Russians back, the Austrians through the south were having a bit of a hard time. The Russians had went ahead and launched their planned attacks in the Carpathians, with the hope that it would force the Germans to shift men from the attack to help their ally, and it looked for a moment like it might work. 
In the middle of May, the Austrians had lost a lot of ground in the mountains, and had lost a lot of men and guns to the Russians. However, Falkenhayn and Mackensen pretty much just ignored the Austrian request for assistance, and focused everything on a renewal of the attacks on the Saan. The next round of attacks would begin along the river on May the 16th. Before the attacks began, the Russian positions were already perilous. Some divisions were down to 1,000 men, or one-sixth of their original strength, and after the attack started, the Germans quickly pushed across the river and deeply penetrated the Russian lines. Dmitriev attempted to relieve some of the pressure by launching a counterattack against the Austrian troops immediately to the south of Mackensen's Germans. But while they had made some gains, they were not enough to cause the Germans to be disrupted. The attack had been launched on the 19th and included several divisions that had been stripped from the northern Russian line, 10 divisions in all. And while Mackensen was forced to send some reinforcements to the Austrians, the German troops quickly took care of the situation, and it would be fully stopped by May the 25th. Overall, it was not a great hindrance to the Germans' attack, and Mackensen had even taken the opportunity to launch another attack, which essentially destroyed the Russian corps that was facing his men that were already across the Saan. Oh, and on June the 4th, the fortress of Schimmischal was taken by the German and Austrian troops the second time that it had changed hands during the war. In the second week of June, the attacking took a bit of a breather. This allowed both sides to take a deep breath and take stock of the situation. The attacks had many far-reaching consequences. The first and most immediate concern for the Russians was that the Russian southern front had been stripped of essentially all reserve formations, and nearly all Russian troops were in the line. The casualties had been in the realm of 400,000, including prisoners, and while the Russians were known for their manpower reserves, not even they could absorb these losses without having some problems. The short-term solution was to move troops from the northern front to assist, and Alexeyev had to give up two corps, then another two corps, before it was eventually decided that Alexeyev's front should be expanded further south. So he had to give up a bunch of troops, and then take over more of the line. This created a situation where the Russians weren't really strong anywhere, which the Germans couldn't fail to notice and would soon take advantage of. There were also some other effects, like the Russian government withdrawing any notion of support for the operation at Gallipoli. Originally, the Russians had promised troops to assist should the Royal Navy manage to punch through the Dardanelles and make it to Constantinople. With the Gorlitsch-Tarnow attacks, this was withdrawn, and the British were told they would have to fend for themselves. The Russians did have one piece of good news, though. On May the 23rd, the Italians had officially entered the war on the side of the Russians, so that was theoretically going to provide some relief. And in fact, on June the 3rd, a large conference was held with the military leaders of Germany and Austria-Hungary, both in attendance, to decide what precisely was to be done about the Italian problem. They, of course, all had separate priorities and wanted separate operations to be launched that would fulfill their individual goals. Falkenhayn wanted to move troops west, not to launch an attack, but to counter the British buildup of troops during the summer of 1915. Hindenburg and Ludendorff wanted a new grand attack in the east, with the goal of surrounding all of the Russian troops in central Poland. This massive encirclement could push the Russians back hundreds of miles, and maybe even knock them out of the war. Falkenhayn argued that the Germans simply didn't have the resources for such a huge undertaking. Ludendorff countered this concern with the fact that if they weren't going to go for some kind of knockout blow, then what exactly were they doing in the war at all? Ludendorff was always supportive of going for these big knockout offensives, as we will see in 1918. 
Oh, and, and don't forget about Conrad. He's the high leader of the Austrian military, and he wanted to attack on Italy, and surely that held some sort of sway, but it, it didn't. Nobody really listened to him very much. At the behest of the Kaiser, a compromise was reached between the German leaders. Ludendorff would give more troops to Mackensen for a renewal of his attacks. Conrad would move some more troops to the Italian front that were strictly for defensive protection from the inevitable attack by the Italians, and were not in any situation to be used for an offensive. This compromise pleased nobody, but it's what was going to happen, and was probably honestly the best thing to do. Mackensen would use these reinforcements to launch his next attack in mid-June, and it would be launched from the German positions across the river. Mackensen would comment before the attacks that he felt he was facing, quote, completely defeated troops, end quote, and really, he was. The Russians were around 500,000 men short of full strength across the entire front, and they were holding a paper-thin line that was completely unprepared to fend off any attack. It very quickly became apparent to everyone, much faster than it had in early May, that the Russians had to retreat, and retreat quickly. Grand Duke Nicholas was convinced just after the attack was launched that a retreat should be ordered immediately, and he would inform the Tsar that it was about to begin. He would also take the opportunity to complain about the quality of reinforcements that were arriving at the front, saying, quote, The quality of reinforcements, as regards to their training, is beneath criticism. Their training has been very hurried, and because rifles are short, they do not even know how to fire. On June the 20th, the evacuation of Lvov and all of Galatia north of the Carpathians was ordered, and on June the 22nd, the Germans entered Lvov. By the end of June, Mackensen had captured another 240,000 prisoners, which brought the total number of captured to 400,000 in the two months of May and June 1915, which is just staggering. And on that bombshell, this episode is now over. But the saga of the Eastern Front Offensives is sort of just getting going. Next week, we will take another nice long look at the Russian situation on the front after these attacks. And spoilers here, it, it isn't pretty. Then we will talk about the next moves that were being planned by, for the German and Austrian armies. I don't have the episode exactly planned out yet, but there's a good chance we will even dive into the attacks during July that would be like hammer blows against the Russians. Also... Next week, History of the Great War will be celebrating its one-year anniversary, as it will be 101 years since the assassination of Franz Duke Ferdinand. So if you want to celebrate the same way that I will be, you will have a bottle of your favorite beverage ready to pop open as soon as the episode is released. So until next time, have a great week. Goodbye,